Welcome to another edition of the Hypocritical Podcast. Joining me, Chief Operating Officer of Powbox, is Rick Kuahara. Hi, Olena. Great to be back again. Thank you. And, you know, of course, we want to thank all of our listeners for subscribing and tuning in each week. We've got a lot going on. And ironically, we're going to talk about Zoom and what's happening with them in terms of privacy and security. Yes, yeah, so Zoom had, I mean, good and bad, a lot of growth uh, due to, you know, what's happening with um, the coronavirus. As more and more people are going remote, they need a way to communicate with each other. And Zoom has been a beneficiary of that move to more remote work. Uh, so Zoom, if you haven't heard, is um, like a web video conferencing platform. And they have added um, about 200 million active users. They've reached that benchmark in March, which was more than they've had in the past year. So they had a lot of tremendous growth really fast and they weren't quite ready for that growth. So they, there has been a lot of stuff in the news lately about security and privacy concerns around Zoom, um, especially since a lot of hackers are focusing on it now. So Zoom announced last week that they're going to halt any feature development for 90 days so that they can improve their privacy and security. So Excellent. one of the things that they, yeah, I mean, it's good, good for them to focus on. They found that when they had all these new users, they're using Zoom in different ways than they intended. So that was um, bringing to light new privacy and security concerns that, um, you know, they weren't aware of. Not going to lie, um, my family has been utilizing Zoom once a week to keep in touch. And just this morning, one of the cousins sent out a report about the FBI urging people to use caution and talking about hackers. And so <laughs> it was pretty interesting. And then the discussion thereafter was like, what do we do? And then yeah. I think we just decided to use, continue to use Zoom. Yeah, Zoom is still a safe platform. Um, even like a couple of the vulnerabilities that were made public last week, one of them required um, a hacker to have physical access to your computer, which, you know, is very not likely to happen. Um, a lot of the other security and privacy concerns are really settings. So, you know, Zoom is really easy to use, um, but unless, you know, you are, you actually look through how to set it up and secure um, everything um, out of the box, it could have some vulnerabilities. Um, so, it, you know, they weren't quite ready for the casual user to come in and try to use Zoom, right? So a lot of their default settings weren't set for maximum security. So one simple thing, for example, is if you're hosting a web conference with a lot of users that you make sure that only the moderator has certain admin rights like um, controlling who can share the screen by default, controlling, you know, who can, moderating the chat, that there's a chat option uh, so that people aren't dropping in um, uh, malicious links. And there's a setting also that people weren't aware of that if you boot someone out of a, um, a conference, 
that you can actually have a setting there to make it so that they can't rejoin later. Uh, because some people are finding that there are people who are kind of um, Zoom bombing a meeting and they'd kick them out, but they just come right back in. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but, that's been like a buzzword, Zoom bombing. Yeah. So there's, but there's things that are, that there are settings in Zoom to prevent all these things. Um, it's just that there's not necessarily easy to know how to do it. I mean, all tech platforms can have vulnerabilities, but they all can be kind of shored up usually. Uh, for example, um, Amazon Web Services, AWS, a lot of people use it, but it's really easy to configure wrong and have a lot of security um, gaps in it. And it's not necessarily that AWS isn't secure. It's just that you have to make sure you set it up in the right way. So Zoom can still be a secure platform. Uh, you just got to really learn it to understand how to make it as secure as possible. And then Zoom also on their side, as these vulnerabilities do pop up that are within the code and not something that users can control, that they do fix them quickly and timely, which it seems like they have been doing. And I think that, you know, with this focus on privacy and security, um, it'll be a good thing for all users because it is a good product. We use it at Powbox, um, and the, it, again, it's just going back to understanding the settings and how to make everything as secure as possible. Mm, definitely. You know, my cousin was saying she signed up for it and then thereafter she kept getting notifications of someone in Vietnam, Vietnam trying to hack into her email. And I was thinking, I don't think that was associated with Zoom at all. That was probably <laughs> some other thing where she inputted her email, but I didn't know what to yeah, say because I didn't want to be mean about it. <laughs> yeah, I. I mean... It goes with a lot of things, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of people download something new. You don't remember about the, all the other 10 things that you've downloaded at the same time or, mm-hmm. or websites you've visited. But yeah, just always being safe, being you know, cautious and making and sure that you settings. have Zoom set up. Yeah, just exactly. Check your settings. Learn how to use the tool. <laughs> Excellent. Great advice. And, you know, as we continue to work from home and stay at home uh, because of COVID-19, uh, we have uh, something in the news that's in response to the COVID-19 pandemic as well. Right. So the Office of Civil Rights, um, who does a lot of the enforcement of HIPAA regulations, they issued a notice last week Uh, where they were going to have um, enforcement discretion for business associates during the pandemic. So uh, what this means is business associates, for people who don't know, are um, companies and organizations that help covered entities um, conduct their business. So for example, if you are hosting data in the cloud, like on AWS, like we had talked about, um, it, Amazon then becomes a business associate of that hospital. So what uh, this discretion, uh, what this notification of uh, enforcement discretion does is it's making it a little bit easier for business associates to operate in good faith, to um, disclose and use PHI you know, if it's for the public health and health oversight activities for the pandemic. So um, trying to make it in simple words, it's kind of like um, during this emergency, if um, FEMA comes over 
um, and says, hey, you know, all these people who are affected here, um, we need to know how many people are, are affected and all these, you know, statistical information. If there's a business associate who is helping run that data, that they can then um, disclose that without quickly, without having to worry about um, uh, HIPAA regulations, you know, are, is this covered? Is this okay? Or is it not? And which could slow down um, treatment of patients and um, quickly helping, uh, um, helping, you know, these organizations, government organizations really make uh, quicker and faster decisions. Mm -hmm. So that goes to like agencies like the CDC, um, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid. You know, there's a lot of these oversight agencies that are trying to, you know, make decisions as best they can with as much data as they can. So this rule is really to help those business associates, um, you know, kind of help uh, give the data as fast as they can without having to worry too much about you know, is this covered under HIPAA or not? Is this a violation or not? Excellent. It kind of helps expedite data and information that can be used to help us. Right. So for the vast majority of business associates, you know, this notification really doesn't apply to them. Like for Powerbox, you know, we're a business associate for our customers and clients. Um, you know, it, it's business as usual for us. Okay, excellent. And what other kind of news headlines do you have for us? Well, an interesting one um, that's been coming up, you know, as you know, there's been a lot of phishing attacks lately um, because of COVID with hacker, you know, with hackers trying to take advantage of it. So one that came out, uh, came to light recently was a phishing campaign that was pretending to come from the World Health Organization. So they, you know, hackers were kind of send these out and pretend that, hey, this, this, these are some new um, points about infection control and best recommendations as put out by the World Health Organization. Um, they put an attachment on that email. So if you actually click on the attachment, um, it actually downloads um, a piece of malware called LokiBot, uh, which is an info stealer. And it basically goes into your system and it can pull out your passwords, um, even passwords on your browser and just, you know, take that information, which can then, you know, be used against you or sold on the dark web. Unreal. <laughs> and so is spear phishing different from regular phishing? It's, is it more targeted? Yeah. Spear phishing is more targeted. Um, it's not necessarily, um, uh, like your, email spam email from a nigerian prince it's you know this uh it's really more targeted and with usually more sophisticated so in this case you know trying to um pretend that it's coming from the world health organization and it really is you know they're probably picking who you know what companies are trying to send this to um and targeting for example um, they could be targeting uh, different departments within the organization. So just something to keep an eye out, eye out on um, and remaining diligent as far as making sure that you read the emails because, you know, this uh, particular attack did have grammatical errors that would have kind of raised the red flag if you read it carefully. So make sure that you're reading it and you're being aware of what you're downloading and clicking on. 
And also be aware if people are forwarding this to you because they didn't read it and they think it's valuable as well. Right. Yeah. You always want to be the, you always want to be um, diligent for yourself and don't just assume something safe mm -hmm. um, just because it was forwarded to you. Thank you, Rick. Well, on each episode of the Hypocritical Podcast, we focus on the latest news headlines and then transition over to who's winning and who's failing. And so now who is winning this week? So for winners this week, um, we have a great collaboration that's coming to help uh, a lot of healthcare providers get the critical medical, medical supplies that they need. Um, you know, as we know in the news, a lot of um, providers and people on the front line are just running low on supplies and it's really urgent that they get um, you know, the, the medical supplies they need in order to triage and treat everyone. So Premier and Resilink uh, launched an online exchange to track medical supplies during the crisis. So it's a cloud-based platform um, and it was developed in collaboration with Stanford Medicine. And it basically, it lets hospitals submit requests for specific items and then be matched with people who can, with um, other organizations who can provide them. So Resilink is a supply chain in um, supply chain mapping and disruption monitoring service. So they kind of specialize in um, these type of exchanges and they teamed up um, with Stanford Medicine and uh, Premier and they call this platform the exchange. So it's gonna let hospitals and frontline healthcare providers to submit requests for the items that they need um, so that other organizations can come in and provide those supplies. So hopefully it can really expedite the communication between saying, hey, I need this, um, who can help provide it and just link um, you know, that supply and demand better and get supplies uh, faster to those organizations who need it the most. Fantastic. That is brilliant. Yeah, it's really, it's really exciting. It's great that it's happening so fast and that, you know, there are a lot of um, companies and individuals really as well um, coming together to try and solve this, you know, this growing need that we're seeing of, providers really needing um, critical supplies to deliver care during, you know, all the craziness with uh, coronavirus. Wonderful. Well, that is definitely hands down a winner. <laughs> yeah. And who would you say is a failure? This week, uh, we're looking at the Otis R. Bowen Center for Human Services, where they actually notified um, that they had an email security breach that affected over 35,000 patients. So this is an Indiana-based provider. Um, and they had said that they had unauthorized individuals gain access to email accounts of two of their employees. So we're not really sure how the email um, breaches happened. Um, and there's not a lot of detail yet as far as, um, you know, what's been accessed. Uh, we just know that it's over 35,000 individuals and that um, it was revealed that the hack happened around um, late January this year and that PHI could have been accessed as a result. So they had to report this to um, the OCR and 
they're currently reviewing as far as how many people are affected. Um, they're going to notify each individual and also help with any um, credit monitoring and identity theft protection services. Um, okay. So, yeah, again, I mean, we just talked about phishing earlier in the show and there is pro like you can guess 90% of the time a breach like this probably was also a phishing attack. Mm-hmm. For sure. But they're also saying that there isn't any evidence that the PHI has been misused or anything yet. Yeah, not yet. Um, but again, you don't really know <laughs> until, um, you know, you don't know if that gets sold somewhere and, you know, maybe then attack on those people or identity thefts happen on that. Mm. It could happen months from now, right? People mm-hmm. could just be buying up the data and just not using it yet. So we don't know. So it's really good that they are offering, offering um, the complimentary credit monitoring and identity theft protection because really that's the only way to make sure that any PHI that was stolen um, doesn't get um, actually used or if it does get um, used that you as the consumer are protected and can know right away when it happens so that you can take steps to kind of uh, address it. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Rick. Uh, And you also have been pretty busy thus far. You also had a chance to chat with Jason Seidel, director of the Colorado Center for Clinical Excellence, a group of Denver psychologists and psychotherapists who provide exceptional therapy by measuring their outcomes using diverse treatment approaches and honoring their clients' preferences. Now, in this interview, they discuss what it takes to measure outcomes for mental health and how they're adapting technology to still deliver quality outcomes during the COVID-19 pandemic. Take a listen. A huge focus you have is on measuring outcomes. Can you tell me more about how you do that and why it's important? Yeah, so we measure outcomes really on two different levels. Uh, we're measuring the outcomes for each client. So that's, we could think of that as the client level where we're interested from session to session, whether our patients are getting better over time and not that it would go in a straight line, but just to see over, overall whether people are improving. And so that's a way we're using it on a clinical level just to adjust if we need to um, how we're doing the therapy with this particular client. And then we also are measuring outcomes on the clinician level. So we're looking at each of us as a therapist in our group to see overall what do our data look like? Are there areas that we're weak in that we need to do more continuing education? Are we getting certain patterns of feedback from our clients about the way we're engaging with them that we need to look at as therapists? So, you know, I might talk too much or I might uh, stir people up too much or, um, or, you know, be too focused on the past. Um, And if I'm getting feedback from an individual client about that, I can adjust that for that client. But if I'm getting consistent feedback from a number of clients that I'm doing something in a way that's getting in the way or that just doesn't feel very useful, um, then that really can direct me to do more of my own training and development as a therapist. So we're looking at the statistics much more on the therapist level. We don't want to overinterpret on the client level because it can be so variable um, on the client level. We just use it on the client level to adjust with that client how we're working together and whether we're 
we're doing the best work we can with that person. Great. And we talked a little about this before. Maybe we can go into it a little bit more. Um, how different that really is, that approach to measure outcomes for the therapist and you know, using that to kind of improve you know, how you're delivering um, care. Can you, can you talk a little bit about how that, um, that kind of shift is and um, you know, why you think that it's, it can be um, so helpful? Yeah. And it, I mean, this is such a big topic because there's such a movement right now, both in medicine and psychotherapy toward uh, outcomes oriented care or, or patient reported outcomes as a way of measuring quality. And there are so many landmines in this field. And so in, in, in my world of, of psychotherapy outcomes, you know, one of the biggest uh, difficulties in getting clinicians to do this is the fear of what's going to happen if your outcomes aren't so good because you know n- we can't all be above average right so so the idea is if you're a below average clinician what do you do with that or worse you know than that what would an insurance company do with that so there's a lot of fear around just knowing uh, how we're doing and then so, you know, making adjustments along the way. So what I do as the practice owner, first of all, is make sure that my therapists know that we're using the data about how we're doing as therapists to support them, to not punish anybody or bonus people for doing really good work. And so not tying it to some sort of punishment or reward, but rather using it to improve their training or direct their, uh, their, their continuing education efforts. So there's a sense of support around it rather than you know, using it as a carrot or a stick. And, and I will tell you that there's been a number of insurance companies and agencies who've tried to use it as a carrot or a stick or both, and it blows up in their face every time because clinicians don't like that. You know, none of us are in this to make money. You know, there's a lot easier ways to make money than being a therapist. We're in it because we really care about helping people. And when you have someone saying, well, if you're not doing a good enough job, then, you know, it could hurt your pay or something like that. It really hurts people's morale. And really all therapists really want is to, to be supported to do the best work they can because that's really all we're in this for. And so having this as a tool to do that, and when therapists really truly can believe that that's what it's being used for, then they tend to be a little less scared and more willing to jump on board and, and, and make use of the, of the feedback they're getting. Right. I mean, that makes sense. Like if, it's, if you're using it as a personal improvement tool, you know, it's much easier to wrap your head around. You're just trying to improve yourself and it's not a competition, right? Yeah. With everyone else. Exactly. So obviously a big thing in the news right now is COVID-19 and it's a big concern. Um, and we've seen a lot of shifts um, in how technology can kind of help you with <clears throat> still delivering care, even though people are having to stay at home and um, shelter in place. Um, so how are you utilizing technology to help you achieve your outcomes? Well, we have definitely made the shift to doing teletherapy or telemental health um, with all of our patients. So we're not doing any in-person work right now. It's all um, by video. And some folks uh, actually do prefer phone rather than video. So we'll do that with those people. And so right now, what we're really focused on is how to use the video technology in a way that still allows us to feel connected with our patients and do good work. 
you know, one of the things about doing therapy is we're really using a person's body in the, in the room. In other words, we're reading their body language and you can get so much of a sense of someone being in the same room with them in terms of just how people are breathing, if they're tensing, we're constantly using that feedback. And, and with a screen that is so limited. And so what we have to rely on much more is facial expression and, and, and also asking more questions than we might have to ask if we were in person. So I might notice that something seems to be happening uh, where I'm, I'm looking on my screen and I see someone seems to be breathing in a more shallow way, but I can't quite tell. I, I think I'm seeing it. So I might not be able to rely on my intuition about what I'm picking up. I might actually have to come out and ask, hey, you know, I'm noticing your breathing seems a little different. Am I seeing that right? So check, more checking in. Mm -hmm. um, but on the other hand, with a video, we also often can, if the quality is good enough, um, we sometimes can see more, you know, in terms of a little micro expressions on people's faces, and that can make our job even easier. So we're just adjusting a lot to how to, how to balance out the information we're losing with uh, information we're, we're gaining by doing the video. And, and, and just, again, continuing every session to get feedback to make sure we're staying on track. Very cool. So now looking to the future, like in 10 years, uh, how do you see more data being utilized um, to help specifically in, you know, your area, psychotherapy or mental health? How do you, how do you kind of see data being utilized? Well, that's a good question because I, I started doing this uh, one way or another about 20 years ago. And I, I was sure that in 20 years, it would all be kind of ironed out and, and being done. And uh, we are still super far away from this being used, uh, you know, throughout mental health. And so I guess, you know, what, what, I'm, what I'm thinking is that we're going to continue to stumble through uh, as, a, as an industry where you know, I, I imagine that, that insurance companies and third-party payers and, and folks who are driving the desire for uh, the data, because frankly, those, those are mostly the folks who are driving it, um, are going to get smarter uh, about how they train clinicians and how they support clinicians to get clinicians to do this. Because, you know, over the last 20 years, um, often they just you know, with varying degrees, um, they've tried to support or educate, but but still there is a sense of real fear among clinicians who will continue to sabotage it because they don't believe it's going to be used in a good way. There's ways of using the data in very helpful human ways, and there's ways of using the data in really stupid and um, dehumanizing ways. And people rightly worry that the data are going to be used in dehumanizing ways that are going to water down the effectiveness of therapy, cause people potentially to fake data, things like that. So these are all very real concerns. So I think it's really going to be a sl much slower slog up and down um, to, to, to find our way through to, to a method of doing this that still has a lot of integrity and, um, and honesty and, and real use for the consumer to, to improve the quality of the care they're getting. Thank you so much, Rick. Of course, another insightful interview. Yeah, thanks. It was really fun talking with Jason. He's really passionate about what he's doing. And I think that, you know, hopefully he's able to advance um, that measurement of outcomes for mental health. I mean, just, it just makes sense, you know, for other healthcare disciplines, you know, everybody's always measuring outcomes. 
Um, so it makes sense to do that for mental health as well. And um, you can, people can learn about that um, and see the full interview on our blog. That's right. Visit us online at powbox.com. Also want to mention, um, what are you doing to ensure your mental health and stability? And if I caught you off guard, Rick, I can start with myself because <laughs> okay. I've been, I've been at home since early March. <laughs> So for me, I started to feel a little bit of cabin fever maybe last week. And I found that if I went back to what I used to do about a year ago, which was about 30 minutes of yoga each day at home, it really does help with my mind, my body and my energy levels. And just taking that time to know that that's a moment for myself and also a little bit of a workout. So if I can encourage anybody to do something for their mental health, that's, that's my tip of the week. That's a good one. I think it's important, you know, when people work from home, there's, there's two types, right? I've been working from home for a couple of years now and there's um, people who get distracted easily and it's tough to focus. So, you know, the best thing for that is usually to have um, routines that you can stick to in a quiet place to work from. Um, then there's people who work too much and too hard and never take a break. And so you don't know how to clock out. So I fall into the latter usually. Uh, so I found for me, it's just really being um, focused on, on taking breaks every now and then, if it, even if it's just 10 minutes. Um, so there's something called the Pomodoro technique that people use, which um, you have a set amount of time to focus, then you do a quick break and then you transition. So I think just finding out what works for you, but definitely, um, People can get a little cabin cabin fever. <laughs> Maybe throw a screensaver or something on of the outdoors. <laughs> mm -hmm. Try to get some green in your life. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much, Rick. And of course, it's a pleasure. And if you enjoy listening to the Hypocritical Podcast, be sure to subscribe and tune in every week. Until next time, thank you.